This episode contains conversation about self-harm and suicide. There is also a mention of gun violence. The interview was recorded on May 12th before the events in Texas. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. My guest this week is a writer, speaker, and mental health advocate who got involved in this issue because he wanted to keep someone here, here in the world. Jamie Twerkowski is the founder of To Write Love on Her Arms. It's a nonprofit organization aimed at helping in the cause of fighting addiction, depression, self-harm, and suicidal thoughts. To Write Love on Her Arms began in 2006, and it's named after an essay that Jamie wrote while trying to help a friend who is struggling with all those issues. Jamie isn't a therapist or a social worker. His background was in the surfing industry, branding and marketing. The essay went viral in a time when going viral was pretty rare. It involved the social network MySpace. You can go look that up if you've never heard about it. We'll talk about the reasons for the name To Write Love on Her Arms in a bit. Jamie is a best-selling author. He's given TED Talks. His story with To Write Love on Her Arms was even made into a movie. Jamie was played by Chad Michael Murray. And Jamie's been a person living with depression his whole life. He has stepped away amicably from running the nonprofit, but he's still very much involved in mental health advocacy. When I spoke with him, he was coming off a breakup, which means he was in a rough patch. For me, heartache has always been kind of the Achilles heel. It's always been the 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 hardest thing. And I know that's not unique. That's what most songs are written about. But uh, uh -huh. yeah, you know, so for me, I think my first adult heartbreak breakup was kind of my introduction to depression was was like, hey, I'm this is bigger than just being sad. Like this is real grief and I, I need to get some help for this. You know, like this is this is taking me out of life for an extended period. And I was just holding on and struggling. And, and that was probably around 22. And oddly enough, that breakup was, a, was really attached to me trying to care for someone who struggled with depression. And I really had no tools. I had no language. I had no wisdom or understanding. So there was sort of this irony that I, I felt like I did a poor job. I had great intentions. I really loved this woman, but I didn't know how to help her. And then when that relationship ended, it was kind of my my own introduction into that experience of, of really struggling with depression. And for me, I think it's kind of been present in my adult life, but I think it's probably true for many of us that, that circumstances play a big part. And so breakups have always been the hardest one. And, and even again, recently, even, even kind of something along those lines, I had counseling today, this afternoon, I have counseling again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So, Good for you. Uh, yeah. Well, were you able to spot it as depression when it came on? Because, you know, it's, it seemed like you had a, a, a happy life. You know, you, you got a, a job in the industry you wanted to get into. Things were going well. Did you have the wherewithal to say, oh, this is actually a, a mental illness that I have? You know, I don't know at what point I got comfortable calling it that. You know, I think um, at this point, I definitely am. You know, I feel like I, I, I'm totally comfortable saying I'm a person who struggles with depression. But yeah, I think it it was also interesting because through the work with the organization, I got comfortable 
talking about these things and kind of inviting people into the conversation and, and even in theory, encouraging people like, hey, it's okay to go to counseling. It's okay to take an antidepressant. But it was another thing to take that advice, you know, and, and to, to take those steps in my own life. And of course, that's true for so many things where we can, giving advice is easier than living it out or taking it, you know? So that's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't know that I can put a finger on that moment. I just remember realizing that maybe I needed to talk to someone, that maybe I needed to see a counselor for the first time. And, and the timeline's a little fuzzy because this is a while back, but, but also simultaneously, I remember talking to a, a counselor friend about me thinking about antidepressants and him just, just encouraging me like, hey, it's, it's totally okay. You know? And so I ended up talking to a psychiatrist and, and I think it's probably been about 12, 13 years, somewhere in there where I've been on an antidepressant. Yeah. Um, I, I know that telling the story of how to write love on our arms got started is, is probably the thing, probably the thing you've said most in your entire life, <laughs> but I do feel compelled to give people an explanation of how it got started and what the name yeah. of it is. No, no, that that's totally okay. Yeah. So to write love on our arms started in 2006. I actually just got back from Illinois and I, I spoke to some middle school folks and I realized they were not alive when this story took place. And so it's, it's wild how much time has passed. So it's, I'm more comfortable talking to grownups because I have to talk about things like MySpace. <laughs> but yeah, 2006, I was introduced to a young woman named Renee who was 19 at the time. I think I was 26. And, and through a mutual friend, I met Renee. She was dealing with depression, drug addiction, a history of self-injury. We later learned there had been suicide attempts in her life. She was denied entry into a local treatment center in Central Florida, in Orlando. I was renting a room from my friend David at the time, and David was in recovery. David's story, David's life had really been a, a roller coaster, and he he was kind of a voice of wisdom for, for her, kind of a big brother. And so she, she was denied entry into this treatment center because of a, a fresh self-inflicted wound on her arm. She had taken a razor blade and written the word fuck up across her forearm that was actually the night that I met her after I met her. And so the understanding was David could come back the following morning to pick her up and take her to treatment. And when he did that, you know, brought her in and they, they found this wound that was self-inflicted and they actually denied her entry. They, they said that she was too high risk. And, and it's important to point out that wouldn't always be the case that that wouldn't often be the case, but at this particular treatment center, she was labeled high risk and told that if she could stay clean, sober, self-harm free for five days, she would be admitted. And so she lived with us. She lived in our living room. And I was really moved by the experience of getting to know her, learning her story, staying up late, talking about her life, talking about things she had been through. She's this incredible, dynamic, talented, creative, just really compelling person. And that was true back then and, and still today. And I asked her what she thought about the possibility of telling her story. I think I was just starting to not even think of myself as a writer, but realized that I really cared about writing. And I, I think I wanted first to capture this for me. I didn't want to forget. I didn't want to just go back to normal and would have understood if she said no or no way. And instead she said she really loved the idea of her story being told that maybe someone else could be encouraged if we told her story in a way that was honest. She said she loved the idea that there could be a purpose for her pain and after five days, she checked into treatment and I sat down and wrote two and a half pages and kept coming back to this phrase that I had written in the story to write love on her arms. 
which was really a goal that went back to that word that she had marked on her body and the idea that if that was about identity, that I think summed up that she was living, she felt like a failure. She was, you know, filled with regret and sorrow, obviously this incredible pain. And, and I, I was believing that she was deserving of love and sobriety and healing and, and hoping that we could kind of rally and believe those things for her and that eventually she could kind of hold on to this new identity. And so that's what was wrapped up in this long title. And, and it became the title of the story. And essentially the story kind of took on a life of its own. I posted it on MySpace. And 2006 was really the moment of MySpace becoming, you know, I, I talk to young people a lot and they giggle at MySpace or maybe they've never heard of it, but it's like the beginning of the world that they've now grown up in, in terms of social media becoming everyday life. So the story, you know, it, at first, any anyone I heard from outside of Florida was exciting and far away. And within weeks, it was Canada and Australia and England and Ireland and just seeing the best of the internet and the best of communication and then had the idea to print and sell some t-shirts as a way to help pay for her treatment. And the t-shirts kind of took on a life of their own as well. Some friends in bands started to wear them and it all just kind of kind of blew up. And, and, and especially in sort of this like warp tour kind of hot topic, alternative music, MySpace space, it just all of a sudden was everywhere. And there was very much the element of like this trend, this really exciting, who would have thought trend. And, and so, then the challenge or the the interesting thing became could it could it last like could it grow into something that matters and and lasts more than a summer or six months and it's cool that 16 years later the organization's really thriving and helping a lot of people i still kind of say we i transitioned out last summer but the organization has given more than three million dollars to treatment to counseling helping a whole bunch of people and and obviously it really changed my life and was there an affiliation with, with a church at one point? No, it's interesting. I mean, definitely got, got that question a lot. There was, I think, what you might call Christian language in the story. And, and I think that's just that language represented where I was at at the time. You know, even meeting Renee, it was sort of within like a church, sort of our church community was kind of like the, the friend group. But I knew pretty quickly, especially as it became you know, thinking about a nonprofit or, or something organized that I didn't want it to be a ministry. I didn't want it. I wanted it to be something for all people, no matter what they believed, no matter what their faith or lack of faith was. And I'm really thankful that that I went about it that way because because today I love that it's been able to impact people who believe different things, people whose lives might look different, even in different parts of the world. And so it's to me, it's kind of cool that we we sort of survived this, uh, there was a lot of kind of faith-based language in that original story. And it, it's, it's, I think it's kind of rare to see something that looks that way and uses some of that language that, that somehow reaches people outside the church. And I think I hold a lot of that looser 16 years later, that's just been my journey. When I wrote the story, it, it, there was no thought of having an audience. There was no thought of it becoming like the foundation of a charity. It was just kind of me writing in my room, you know? Well, as far as you can tell, why did it grow as fast and as large as it did? Yeah, I think, um, I think it was honest, you know, I, certainly today, a lot of people and you know, you, your show is represents part of this, but people everywhere are talking more and more about mental health, talking openly. We see it in sports, we see it in Hollywood, music, everywhere we look, we're kind of being given permission to talk about mental health, which is awesome. But 16 years ago, it 
there were less people, especially in the context of kind of this grassroots social media. And, and the story was written in a way that I think was kind of was poetic and kind of lyrical and, and human and romantic. It wasn't clinical. That wasn't even today. That's not who I am or my background. I don't have that wisdom. And I think people just responded to a story that I think had a lot of contrast. So it was painful, but it was hopeful. And it didn't have a happy ending. Like it, like we were still in the middle of it. There was a lot of uncertainty. And I think it, I think people, it's not that I was this brilliant writer. I think it just, it related to so many folks, whether that was their story, the story of someone they cared about, the story of someone they were concerned about, someone they had lost. And so we just very quickly started to hear from people in all sorts of places, you know, people asking for help, people asking how to help, people talking about something that maybe they had never talked about. It was, it was just, a, yeah, pretty, pretty incredible timing. I also think it was just, it's interesting. I think to, to, to try to do that today would be challenging because there's so much, which is a good thing, but there's, at the time, I don't think I had ever seen mental health in the context of social media. And now there's, you know, hundreds of people that have, I feel like every day I'm stumbling upon people with 300,000 followers that are doing great work in this space. And it was just so different back then where, where it was like, wow, he's, these folks are talking about something I've never really seen talked about, especially in kind of a pop culture, cool way. Yeah. Well, and especially among, among young people too. I, I think there was such a, such a hunger that hadn't been either recognized or, or certainly not tapped that in the last several years. And I think a lot of this got kicked off around the time that that organization did, people were just starving for it, but they needed someone else to make a first move. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it was kind of a perfect storm. And it was also like, it was weird. You know, the title was weird. It, mm -hmm. people, people, some people assumed it was a band, like you kind of had to figure it out. You know, you, there, <laughs> there's there an was, emo element to it. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> but there was this kind of constant question of like, Hey, what does that shirt mean? One of my favorite sort of subplots was like literally people having that conversation where, Hey, what does your shirt mean? And it wasn't just, I think the chance for that person to, to talk about, a story or a movement or later a charity, but like hopefully to tell their own story. And, and all of a sudden, like in an airport or a coffee shop, two strangers are talking about things that so often go untalked about, you know? And so I think it was kind of this cool, like Trojan horse where I thought I grew up with good brands and good design. And, and so if we're going to make one t-shirt, let's try to make a cool t-shirt, you know? And, and I think, so there was something just kind of attractive and curious about it. And I think, I think, you know, I'm not there anymore, but I think we've always valued creativity and design and the way things look. And obviously now so many, I think maybe like our parents or grandparents generation, you know, their charities weren't good at that. It was kind of the nuts and bolts. And today you see so many movements and social causes that are, are really, really value language and design. If you Google to write love on her arms, especially if you do an image search, you really see Jamie's branding and marketing background come into play. It's a break from the kind of refined, distinguished, more formal branding that a lot of charities use. And it was kind of revolutionary because unlike some charities, it wasn't about guilt. To write love on her arms made mental health advocacy into this cool club that you wanted to be a part of, just like if it was a, a band or a fashion brand. Just ahead, mental health awareness is better these days. Suicide rates aren't. So what do we do when we're losing?
back with Jamie Twerkowski, founder of To Write Love on Her Arms. The bad news is that we're losing in the anti-suicide effort. I mean, in, in 2018, I just pulled up these stats, 14.2 people per 100,000, highest rate recorded in more than 30 years. And, you know, I, I've been doing this kind of mental health awareness work for, for a while. And I, I find it hard not to get discouraged sometimes because mm. you can feel good about reaching out to people. You can feel great about a very moving email that, that you get, but I can't help feeling like we're not, we're not winning. It's, you know, it's, mm. it's not enough. Why do you yeah. think we're still losing? Oh man, it's a, that's a great question. And, and, you know, probably the, the million dollar question. I think there's a, a lot of factors. It's weird. I, I think it feels like things have gotten better and worse at the same time in the sense that it's true that more people are talking about it. It's true that the stigma is becoming smaller or becoming less. I, I do think people understand in theory, I can, I can talk about mental health. I can talk about thoughts of suicide. I can talk about depression or anxiety even in theory, I can ask for help, but it's another thing, I think, when you're in that dark place to reach out, to ask for help, to take that step. And, and so, you know, and then I think it's just everywhere we look, there are challenges from, from the pandemic to politics to is the world going to overheat? Like there are a ton of reasons to be anxious, afraid, sad, divided, stressed out. Not And those are all like kind of the universal existential big picture, not to mention divorce and cancer and, and breakups and people losing their jobs. And, you know, certainly the, the little bit I've learned, you know, we see that when basic needs are not met, even, even in recent years, 2018 would be pre-pandemic, but the, some of the research that I've read is it just talks about what, what should be basic, but to me it was powerful where even basic needs, even, even food and shelter and someone being able to make a living and pay their bills and pay their rent is connected to this problem of suicide, is connected to mental health. So I think there are so many factors. And I, I agree every time, whether it's a headline, whether it's a personal story, whether it's a, a famous person or simply someone in our community or a friend of a friend, it, it's devastating every time. And I agree with you that it can be so disheartening. And, and I, I'm thankful that 16 years in, I'm not numb to that news, that it, it's still it, it still hits me and I, it's still like the worst thing I can imagine is when a family, when, when a group of friends, when people get this news. Do you get discouraged? Yeah, I, I think I'm more discouraged by my own struggles. I don't know if that's healthy or not, but I, I, I think I've figured out some boundaries. I've figured out that this work can't be about me being the, the solution or some kind of superhero. You know, I, I don't have me having coffee with 20 people a day is not the solution to suicide prevention or, or like, I don't have some wild gift for validating someone's story. I, I, I think um, I've figured out my own limitations and it took some time, I think, to figure out that like, this can't be about me. This can't be about Jamie. But in terms of, I think what really discourages me, it's, it's my own grief. It's my own pain. It's my own heartache. And I've, I think I've learned how to carry and also kind of, I've learned how to hold and, and pass along 
the stories that I hear and, and kind of constantly redirecting people into support systems and, and professional help in the places they live and with the people they live life with. And I think what's a lot harder for me to navigate is, is my own pain. Why did you leave the organization? Good question. You know, I think a, a bunch of reasons, but part of it was it had just been 15 years and I, I, it took way too long for me to figure out I didn't enjoy being a CEO. I didn't enjoy being a manager. And so I really love the creative, the writing, the speaking, feel good at that. And I just didn't feel good. I think that the, in the context of a team and staff meetings and, and especially the level we got to, there were just so many conference calls and meetings and, and, I think over time it was like, I want to keep talking about these things. I want to be about mental health. I want to be about hope, but I, I'm going to, I wonder if I should just be a person at least in this next season, you know? And it's interesting. My mom is the bookkeeper. My sister is one of the co-executive directors. My best friend since I was a kid is, is in leadership. So I, you know, I, I, not only do I cheer for them, like I'm connected to them and I, you know, I root for them. I still send people that way every day. Even when I speak, I just got back from a speaking event and I, not only do I tell the origin story, but like I, I point to them as a resource. And, and so, yeah, a lot of it was time. I think 15 years is a good chunk of time. And I, I think, I feel like I've quit my dream job twice now. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're good. You're good at finding new ones at least. You know that. <laughs> I'm figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, and I, I ask this because I think this happened to me during my work on on this subject as well. Were you ever in a position where you thought, I'm going to help a whole lot of people here. I'm going to help as many people as I can. And then I'm off the hook for, for helping myself. I won't bother helping myself. I'm too far gone. It's not worth it. I'm not worthy of it. Whatever the psychology of yeah. it. But I'll go out and help other people. Did you get into that? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think it was that I... I saw myself as too far gone, but I think I wondered if like, if I could sort of live like a superhero and in a way it's ironic because it is kind of the classic superhero story is like that every superhero is flawed and human and yeah, has comes their struggle. from pain and trauma. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so I think I thought if I can fly around the country and, and be encouraging and post a tweet in the middle of the night that moves someone or encourage like, and it was, it, I shared a little bit earlier, but it was that interesting thing of getting comfortable giving the advice. And it's a privilege, man. Like it's cool. It's, I'm thankful to have the opportunity to push words and ideas out into the world. I'm sure much like yourself, but I realized I can't cut the corners of like, it's not just about everyone else going to therapy. I, I need to go to therapy and it's not just medication is okay in theory, but like maybe I'm someone who needs to take medication and, and also expanding that list over time. Like, you know, self-care is such a, a trend and kind of a, a buzzy thing right now, but, but even learning like, what is exercise? How does that relate to mental health? How does me getting enough sleep? How does prioritizing relationships and reconnecting with certain hobbies? Um, I think I used to just think I needed to work around the clock. And part of that came from worry. Part of that came from like, if I don't, keep this up. It's all going to go away at any time. There was a lot of fear. I think now I'm a lot more interested in what's actually a healthy life. And I think now I'm just aware that all of that's connected. And I'm, and I think what I'm thankful for is out of my own, you know, healing, recovery, therapy, I can share stories 
I can hopefully do good and do work that I want to do. I've been thinking lately, like maybe I'm people try to position me as kind of a mental health expert. And, and I don't, I understand that, but I, I'm, I think I feel more like someone who's trying to be honest about this experience of being alive. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're not a, a doctor, but you're a, mm. you know, a lot of stories. <laughs> You've yeah. had a lot of experiences. Yeah. What parts of your thinking about mental health have evolved over the last 15, 16 years? You know, I think the biggest thing that comes to mind is, and this is, I think, true for many of us, but just thinking about the intersections and thinking about the idea that caring for people or caring about people has to include caring about things that affect people. And so it was a pretty charmed position. I say this a lot where it's like no one protests the suicide prevention event, at least in, in my experience, no one protests the guy who's tweeting about hope. It's like everyone high fives you on both sides of the aisle. But a bunch of years into this, I started to learn about gun violence and refugees and people whose life experiences were different than mine and just people in the margins of society. And I started to think, all right, I, I care about mental health because I'm trying to care about people. I didn't just pick it off a list, you know? And so if, if these other issues affect people, I, I want to, I want to care about them as well. And I, I'm still aware that like mental health is, is my lane. It's my background. It's what I've fallen into, but that, you know, when you, when you look at gun violence and you look at how gun deaths relate to suicide, that there is a mental health component to uh, gun laws, to, to the, the accessibility or availability of, of firearms. And, and so I think just the scope of it has expanded and, and like like millions of us trying to figure out how to navigate this political climate and how to choose my battles and speak up. And I didn't really deal with criticism for the first decade or 12 years. And we got to the Trump years and I, I realized I had some opinions about some other things. And, and so I don't, I don't know, hopefully that's not like too weird of a direction, but I, I think just learning that mental health is, is, is not just going to stay within these little fences, you know, but that, that uh, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of factors that affect someone's mental health. And I want to learn about and care about some of those other things. And then how is your depression doing? Uh, it, it tends to be pretty circumstantial. So within the last couple of weeks, I've I had a relationship end and it's been really, really hard. Coming up, knowing a lot about depression cannot cure depression. But what happens when a breakup, which triggers Jamie's depression more than anything else, is met with a lot of tools and resources and techniques aimed at dealing with depression effectively? Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, Boy Detective. Our comedy podcast, Jordan Jesse Go, just celebrated its 15th anniversary. It was a couple months ago, but we forgot. Uh, yeah, completely. Our, our silly show is 15 years old. That makes it old enough to get its learner's permit. And almost old enough to get the talk. Wow, I hope you got the talk before then. A lot of things have changed in 15 years. Our show's not one of them. We're never changing and you can't make us. Jordan, Jesse, go the same forever at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm going first. It's me, Jackie Cation. Man, she's always this bossy. Uh, <laughs> hi. I'm Lori Kilbarton. Uh, we're a bunch of stand-up comics, and uh, we've been doing comedy like 60 years total with <laughs> both of us, but we look amazing. And, uh, working out. We drop every Monday on Max Fun, and it's called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it and learn about comedy and learn about anger management and all the things. And Jackie is married but childless, and I'm unmarried but childful. So together, we make one complete woman. Is that just what's going to end? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And we try to make Kyle laugh just like that and say, oh, my God, every episode. It's a good job. Jackie and Lori Show, Mondays, only on Maximum Fun. back with Jamie Twarkowski. I spoke with Jamie close on the heels of a relationship ending. He's trying to manage that situation. I always say I typically therapy is once a week and during the hard weeks, it's twice a week. If my counselor has the room in her schedule, there's been some hard weeks and, and this week is one and the next few might be, but you know, I, I'm aware that I have more tools. I have more language. I, I, I know that I, I'm thankful. For, I'm so thankful for my counselor. I'm thankful for the, the antidepressant I take each night. And, and again, self-care relationships, honest conversations with people who love me, getting exercise, getting rest, thinking about the food that I eat, even something as simple as, you know, drinking water, <laughs> uh, just learning that there are so many things I can throw at my depression. So, you know, so many things that relate to my stability and, and healing. So it depends, you know, if you had asked me a month ago, it would have been a little better. And, and hopefully if you ask me a month from now, it'll be a little better, but it, it feels important to be honest about, Hey, things are tough at the moment because I know that I don't have the market cornered when it comes to that. And so I, you know, one silver lining is if I can admit when I'm struggling, hopefully it makes it easier for someone else to do that. You've spent more time than most, I think, really, really looking at these issues that can can lead to disastrous mental health. And you've been dealing with depression yourself when something like a breakup happens, which, you know, in the past has been a a catastrophic thing, as you've described. uh, Is your is your overall mindset different? I mean, do you because it's so often with people with depression would think it's the end of the world. Like I can yeah. do what I need, but this is, I'm going to die. Like this yeah. is huge. You know, it's, it depends. I literally said this to my counselor as we started our session a couple hours ago, but it, it depends on the day. It depends on the moment within the day. I'm thankful that I'm aware of the tools, but there are still moments that feel beyond my control. You know, there's still moments that are dark. There are still moments where I'm just really sad and, yeah, so it's, I don't know. And I'm, I'm also trying to recognize the pattern. I think, whereas in the past, I would just be so sad about this person that I've lost. I think I am trying to observe like, okay, wow, some there are some similarities. There are some things that are maybe more about me and my story and this repeated behavior and, and you know, quite simply a pattern that I want to be willing to look under the hood, you know? So I think it's, I think it's all of those things at once. It's like, being thankful for the moments of where I cope in a way that's healthy, where I reach out to someone, where I make the extra counseling appointment, where I make good choices and then trying to have grace and also accountability for 
the moments where I go, man, this is really messy. This is really hard. Or I, I don't love how I handled this pain today, you know? So I, I think it's a mixed bag. Do you, cause a lot of people will say, if you're feeling that pain, you need to, to hold that in your hand. You can't just try to get rid of it. Like it feels so bad that you think I got to stop feeling this. I got to get away from this. And then it results in people either pushing it down or numbing it up with substances, yeah. that kind of thing. What do you do with the pain that you're in? Oh, you know, I, I do different things and some of them are better than others. And and I think that one of the hard things for me has been, I, I always tend to hold on and, and even recently, you know, and the irony, at least in my experience is that in holding on to someone who doesn't want to be held on to, they end up pushing you away. So it has the reverse effect. You know, I'm, I'm trying to change someone's mind or change someone's heart. I'm trying not to lose someone and as a result, I, I kind of lose them more or maybe to a more extreme extent. And so it's a weird thing of trying to hold myself accountable, but also trying to have grace. And, and I think therapy is a great place for that. So it's a mix, you know, I, there's a lot of hours, there's a lot of minutes in the day. And so I think it's a mix of good decisions, good coping, good choices, and, and some moments of regret and some moments of self-soothing, you know, where it's like, man, I, I, I reached out more than I should have this week. Right. You know, so I, I think, and, and I think it's true, you know, beyond breakups, beyond depression, it, it's true of recovery in many forms. It can be true of sobriety that we fall down, we make mistakes, there are relapses and, and that maybe the, the bigger story becomes, am, am I willing to keep going? Am I willing to kind of live in the tension of like accountability and grace and just, just trying to do better. And, and also just believing that life goes on, believing that this isn't the end of my life or my romantic opportunities that believing that life can still be good and life can still be worth living. And having the kindness to yourself that you would, that you would display to anybody you knew in that kind of situation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm impressed that you are you are someone who knows a lot about mental health awareness. You you know a lot about the experiences that people go through, but you're very much a a, a traveler on the journey yourself. <laughs> Does that surprise people when you go out and give talks and you meet a lot of people that you're not a guru, that you're not the one saying, ah, "Look, I've got all the answers. Here's what yeah. you do." I don't know. I I think there was there are still moments of imposter syndrome, you know, cause it's almost like that thing where I go, okay, I'm not a mental health expert. And they're like, well, you, you we're bringing you in as a mental health expert, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, but I think I've, and this is maybe true of most forms of imposter syndrome where it's like, you can only be yourself. You, you know, like it doesn't, the, the public speaking or this conversation or any part of my life or my career is probably not going to go that well if I fake it or try to, know more than I know or be something I'm not. And so I actually think there's been some freedom even recently, even, even in the last couple of weeks of like, I hope I've learned some things along the way. I'm going to try to share them, but I also just, I want to be honest about what you pointed out. Like I, maybe the best of what I have to offer is as a traveler on this journey. And it's a mix of stories that I've bumped into and also being willing to share my own. And I, you know, again, I think so many people relate to like, 
I, yeah, I guess just that, that imposter syndrome of, of wait, what if people really knew my inexperience or, or my real thoughts or my real struggles? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too. I mean, we, full disclosure, Jamie and I, uh, work uh, through the same speakers bureau. So I, I think we we sometimes must clearly have gotten into similar situations. And I'm not a, a doctor or a therapist. I always say, I can't tell you what the expert opinion is because I, I often don't know and I'm at the very least unqualified. I can tell you what's happened to me and what yeah. I've noticed, you know, and, and yeah. that often makes people lean in a little bit more. It mm. kind of puts people a little bit more at ease, like they're not about to be lectured to. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I totally relate. And even it's funny there was a recent invite that I got for speaking and it, and it was middle school folks and high school folks. And then there was a parents event and there was actually another event for staff and teachers. And I just felt like I was wow. in over my head. I just felt like, I don't know if I'm the right guy for this. And, and Sean, our agent was really encouraging. Like, you know, he, he knows me, I'm sure he knows you, he know he knows our capabilities and our background. And, and then it was cool to show up and, and have to do my best, but also lean into just being who I am and to feel like, wow, whoa, these, it actually went okay. Like I, maybe I don't have to be something I'm not, maybe right. I can, I can do my best and be myself and, and it could go all right. Yeah, yeah, no. I, it makes me think that I should start denouncing myself as an imposter at the beginning of each speech <laughs> because that would save everybody some time, and then yeah. you know the threat would pass. What do you say when when this is a question that that has come up a lot in the course of this show and a lot a lot of the work I do, and I'm I'm never really sure how to answer it. When you get the question, "What should I do if I'm worried about the mental health of someone close to me? How should mm. I approach that?" What do you say? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. It's a common question. I think a couple of things come to mind. I, for starters, encourage someone to say something. And I, I sometimes tell people, even if you don't know what to say, you can start there. It doesn't have to be the perfect speech. It doesn't, you don't have to have all the tools or all the wisdom. I have a, a counselor friend. He's actually, I referenced him earlier, but my friend Aaron Moore uh, has been a licensed counselor for years. And I've heard him talk about as the concerned friend trying to show up with a mix of honesty and compassion. And so honesty means we tell the truth. We, we ask the hard question. We, we address the elephant in the room. We say the hard thing. And compassion means we make sure that the person on the receiving end knows that we love them, that we are for them, we're with them. And so it's kind of this delicate dance of showing up with both. And, and that's something that has really stayed with me is I think you express that love and concern you make it known you're not, you don't have all the answers, but you're, you want to be part of the process. And, and then I think I just encourage people, you know, the same way you want your car that's giving you trouble to get to a mechanic, or you want the broken arm to get to the doctor at the hospital who fixes broken arms. There are people who can help. There are people who are qualified, who know how to address, they know how to have these conversations about depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addiction, thoughts of suicide. And, and so I think I try to start there, just, Hey, say something. Don't, I think so often when we don't know what to say, we don't say anything. And that's true beyond mental health, obviously. But I think when it comes to this, you never know what your concern, what your showing up in some form might mean or, or what it might lead to. And it also might be a process. It, it, 
someone might push you away the first three times and and somehow you show back up at a, in a certain moment and, and they let you in, they, they hear you, you encourage them that they don't have to navigate this season alone and, and somehow hope or that, that advice kind of breaks through one day. And, and so I think you, yeah, I just, I, I love to encourage people. And then, but, but just to know, like in the same way that I need help at times that my friends and family can't provide that we oftentimes are the people we love are going to need more help than we can provide. And, and I think it's, it's not one or the other. It's, it's a matter of both. Like we all need a support system. We all need a community. We need people who know us and love us. And then it's totally okay that we need professional help at times as well. You've used the word season a couple of times during our <laughs> conversation. Is that a reference to like going through a bad patch? Is that what you call it a season? You know, I don't know. I've always used that word and, and, people have noticed and pointed it out. I think I, I, I definitely don't want to apply that to everyone, but certainly in my own experience, there have been seasons and, and maybe, maybe we do see that throughout our lives and not, not only specific to depression or, or pain or grief, but I think we, yeah, we, we go through different seasons. And so for me, I think it, in a way, framing it that way, you know, I, I'm grieving right now in a way, and I have to remind myself that I will not always be grieving, you know, that, that at some point some healing takes place or some circumstances shift, or I meet someone enough time goes by or all of the above. And, and I move into a different season. So I, I, I don't know. I, I've always, I guess, gravitated toward that word or that idea. I like it. It's kind of poetic. <laughs> Jamie Tchaikovsky, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Besides his work with mental health causes, Jamie Torkowski also runs an apparel company called Needs an Ocean, clothing that declares that various landlocked places, Indiana for instance, need an ocean. He came up with the idea while living in Nashville and really missing the ocean. He has since moved back to Florida, where there are oceans. He's online at jamietorkowski.com. It's not that hard to spell. Sound it out. Well, let's take a little moment here, just a, a moment to not not get distracted, not get uh, caught up on things, a moment of meditation with Laura House. Hi, Laura. Hello. You know, sometimes I, when we do these things, I'm, I'm in my office chair, and it strikes mm -hmm. me as how the physical position I should be in is similar to how you should be when you're taking your blood pressure. <laughs> like a, a little... A little leaned back, but not all the way. Back, that kind both of... feet on the ground, legs not crossed. You know, have your yeah, arms fair. where they can rest. And I think there might be, I think there might be a pretty clear connection between those things. Maybe does it? Do you feel a little on alert? Like maybe someone might run in and take your blood pressure because they <laughs> notice you're in the perfect position. That's rare in in my experience. <laughs> what if somebody just dashes in and takes my blood pressure? <laughs> that's, that's that's a thought to have during meditation that you then let go of. That's that's a good practice in, in letting go. All the things of we worry about. I know. Let's settle in here, shall we? Yeah, so yeah, you just want to be comfortable and what I love too is if you if you want to cross your legs, you may. Like there's there's no blood pressure person who's going to correct your position. So in this, you just want to be comfortable 
and supported by whatever you're sitting in and be able to close your eyes safely so no driving and just start by closing your eyes and just notice your breath. It might be the first time today you've noticed or the first time in weeks or longer, but it's been happening. So just notice it. And you'll have thoughts. It's completely natural to have thoughts. And your attention will start to wander into your thoughts away from your breath. And when you become aware of that, just gently notice your breath again. Just let go, see what happens. Go ahead and open your eyes slowly. And that was just a little moment of meditation. Yeah, yeah. nobody came and put anything on my arm. That was awesome. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that would be, I would have had to stop taping if they had. <laughs> you get it. What are you doing? What? Come on, here. come on. We were just talking about it. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> you can hear Laura as the co-host of the Tiny Victories podcast here on Maximum Fun. You can also find her on internet at laurahouse.com. Laura, thank you. Thank you. Next time on Depression Mode, dating is a bit different when you add a little self-awareness. You initiate sex, I guess, by asking someone to come over. When I was drinking, it was like, if a guy invited me over, I would go over. And then within like probably seven minutes, we were like fully fornicating. But I've had guys, like I've been on sober dates and the guy invites me over and I go over. And even though it's very clear that he invited me over for sex, it's still so awkward and weird. I have to like just be like, do you want to have sex? Like, and should we start now? You know, because it's harder to be coy when you're sober. Comedian and writer Ginny Hogan joins us. If people support our show, we can keep having a show. If people don't support our show, we can't have a show. So if you are already supporting Depression Mode, thank you so much. You are making this possible and you are helping human beings out in the world. If you haven't joined yet, that's okay. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join Select Depression Mode, find a level that works for you, and you're on your way. Be sure to hit subscribe on our show, write reviews, give us five stars. All that stuff really helps. It gets the show out into the world more. It helps more people notice it, and that helps more conversations about mental health happen, which is the whole goal of the show. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts, your praise, your criticisms, and your recipes. 
If you're on Facebook, you can look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies, and join the fun over there. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our newsletter, our Depression Mode newsletter, is available on Substack. I write it. comes out twice a week. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, Credits listeners. I am from the Pacific Northwest, but I live in Minnesota, where there are no oceans, and I miss oceans. People say, well, how about the Great Lakes? Those are like oceans. And I say, no, it's not the same. They don't smell like oceans, and thus do not serve my sentimental ocean needs. I wrote a book called The Hilarious World of Depression. It's a memoir. It has lots of stuff about mental health. People tell me it's very useful and helpful and entertaining. And I believe those people because it feels good to do so. And enough people have told me that, my gosh, it must be true. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. And we get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Hi, this is Olivia from Calera, Alabama, here to remind you that you are doing an amazing job at being you. Don't let the bastards keep you down. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.